so the city of Babylon is not just a wonderful city that man could make for himself. It was a city in opposition to God and his plan. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Precious Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have formed one new people from Jew and Gentile, that together you drew those who are far off and those who are near. And Lord, today we have the privilege of opening the scriptures to study your word and Lord, to see the nations brought before you. We're asking, Lord, that you would instruct us and encourage us that as the gospel is preached, the unsearchable riches of Christ this morning would be made known to us, and that through the church, this manifold wisdom of God would be made known. And so we pray that you would instruct us in the way that we should go for Christ's sake and for our joy and good, we pray. Amen. What associations do you belong to? What organizations would bear your name on their roles. I had the privilege a few years ago to help found a local organization called the Gospel Forum with a few other local pastors. Uh, You may have heard of it. We together have a a group of believers that contribute articles and podcasts and and different events to help build the, the health of the church locally doctrinally. That's sort of what the Gospel Forum is about. And um, actually, men, we're going to be hosting a men's conference in November, so we're very excited about that. You'll hear more details soon. But it's an association of believers where all of us individually could segregatedly, I guess, contribute content. But when we come together, we realize that there's strength in numbers when we band together. And, and this seems to happen throughout time. There have been, there've been some serious associations and some silly ones. You have very politically driven organizations like the NRA, and then you have some very silly organizations such as the Cloud Appreciation Society. That's actually a thing. You can go Google it later. But the reality is whether you're a part of a book club or a civic organization or a PTA, even the HOA, we've bought into this idea that there is strength in numbers. That's why political candidates run under the banner of a political party. They align with a party because you can be exponentially more effective with others than if you were just by yourself. One commentator, C.H. McIntosh, said, in looking down along the stream of human history, we may easily perceive a marked tendency to confederacy or association. Man seeks for the most part to compass his great ends in this way. Whether it be in the way of philanthropy, religion, or politics, nothing can be done without an association of men regularly organized. And yet, what happens when this association of men, this organization of people, includes open defiance of Yahweh, the one true living God, as many of them often do? We are continuing our study in the book of Genesis, and ever since chapter 3, we've been seeing case study after case study of hostility 
and rebellion against God and his law. Back in Genesis chapter three, we saw that Adam and Eve transgressed God's command. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then when they did that, sin and death invaded the world like an awful and uninvited guest. We saw the next wave, the next generation. Adam's son Cain murders his brother Abel. We see more selfishness and more sin entering the world. Eventually the Nephilim come onto the scene and around that time the world is filled with violence and every inclination of the human heart all the time was evil continually. We saw how God finally cleansed the earth of this violence with the global flood and yet even though he cleansed the earth, sin still remained. We saw, Ad, or we saw Noah get off of the ark, make an offering, but then very soon after that, drunken stupor, and that leads Ham to abuse his father, and then his son Canaan becomes cursed. And so in the midst of all of the generations of people that spread out from the ark that we looked at last week, we saw how one man stood up, one man Nimrod, whose name means we will rebel. And Nimrod forms a kingdom that I want to suggest to you is an anti-kingdom. It's a defiant rebellion against Yahweh. And as we'll see today, this culminates in the city of Babel or the Tower of Babel, also known as Babylon. And this rebellion, this association, this alliance seeks to band together to oppose God. But one person poignantly said this, and this is so instructive for us. They said, what man proposes God disposes. So all attempts to subvert the word of God and the will of Almighty God will ultimately end in frustration and fury. And so today in our text, we're going to break down these three uh, sections, uh, just nine verses uh, in this way. We're going to see the collaboration of mankind in verses one through four. We're going to see the contemplation of Yahweh in verses five through seven. And we're going to see the confusion of languages in verses eight and nine. And ultimately, we're gonna see today, this rebellious anti-kingdom will keep seeking to band together to conspire against God. But in the end, no rebel, no rebellious nation will succeed against Christ and his kingdom. We're gonna see how in the new covenant, God has redeemed and even in a way reversed what was confused in Babel. And now what our charge is as citizens and ambassadors of our king. So let's begin with this first section, the collaboration of mankind. We spend a little bit of time in verse one. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. If you were here last week, you might say, well, how can that be? Because rewind, Genesis 10:31 says, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Well, if that's the case in chapter 10, how then can we turn just one verse later or two verses later to chapter 11, verse one, and the whole earth has one language? Uh, I believe the answer is simple. Chapter 10 comes chronologically after chapter 11. Remember, Moses is writing this. He's, he's laying out the genealogy that we studied last week in chapter 10, and he's showing who each of the descendants uh, of Shem, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth eventually became. But chapter 11 takes place in the days of Nimrod, and we know he was the grandson of Ham or the great-grandson of Noah. In fact, if you look at chapter 10, verse 25, you note that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. 
And we made the argument last week that that's speaking of the division of the earth uh, at Babel. Peleg was Shem's grandson, also Noah's great-grandson. So chapter 11 seems to be rewinding back to the days of the great-grandsons of Noah. Just a few generations after Noah, uh, the days of Peleg, the days of Nimrod, most likely 150 to 200 years after the ark. So we see in chapter 11, everyone speaking the same language. Many scholars theorize, uh, historically this is Akkadian, the Akkadian language, similar to the Sumerian uh, language, and yet it's long been extinct. This is not something that people actively see, uh, speak today. So, look at verse two. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, this is subtle, but often the rebellion out of Eden has had an eastward trajectory. So if you wanna do a fun little Bible study, just go look up all of the eastward trajectory that rebellion seems to have ever since the garden. We don't have time to look at all the verses of this, but it is a little fascinating in the book of Genesis. But they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settle there. The land of Shinar is spoken often of in Egyptian and Hittite records, and it's known as the land of Babylon, or AKA modern day Iraq. This is the plain of Shinar. Now you might think, why would they settle of all places in Iraq? That seems like the last place that you would want to say, this looks like a nice place to set up shop. Well, uh, in that day, remember, this was a very fertile valley watered by the Tigris and the Euphrates River. This would have been a very perfect place really to be a place or a seat of power and rebellion. Uh, it would have been a very uh, beautiful and flourishing valley. But remember, God's command to Noah and previously to Adam was in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply and do what to the earth? What was the command? Do you remember? It's one, it's one verb. You Be fruitful and multiply and fill was the word. Fill the earth. Go and fill the ends of the earth. Uh, in other words, go spread out. Don't settle together. Build out, not build up. And so notice verse three. They said to one another. So this is, not a, uh, this is not a conference with Yahweh. God, we'd like to know exactly where you would want us to go. No, they said to one another. This is a, a godless, if you would, conference. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, just so you know on this, geologists and historians point out that in the Shinar Plain, in this part of Iraq, there really is little to no stone whatsoever. So the people confer with one another and they construct bricks. They form this new technology. The soil there is actually a very rich alluvial material. And if you were to take this material, this, this uh, soil, you were to compact it with water, you take this clay, you were to form it in the sun, it would actually form really good bricks. Uh, they were uh, not though, notice, they were not just sun-dried, but they're actually uh, burnt in kilns. Let's make bricks and let's burn them thoroughly. These bricks, it's estimated, were about a foot square and three to four inches thick. They were baked in the kilns to reinforce the strength of the brick. And then it says that not only did they have brick for their stone, they had bitumen for mortar. When you take petroleum and you distill it, 
you obtain this very black viscous material known as bitumen. And uh, we actually use it in modern asphalt. So this is something we still use today. And when you harden it, it becomes a very, very hard cement, still used in parts of the world today uh, as mortar. And so these men take this new technology as the means of defying God. Now, when you first read this, you go, okay, it just looks like they're trying to use mortar to solidify the kiln-fired bricks. But it's interesting that this same idea of pitch was actually used to waterproof the ark. And it was used to be the basket that Moses was placed in as a baby. I like that. That's great. Perfect. There we go. So I think it's interesting that the same word that's used here is the word that's used to pitch the outside of the ark, and it's used to pitch specifically the basket. In other words, in each of these references where this word is used, there's a vessel that's constructed to keep it watertight, to keep it watertight from judgment. Do you see what's happening here? Don't be distracted. It's very likely that the people did not believe God's promise to never again flood the earth. So what do they do? They build a tower to defy God. We're going to go above. If there's ever a flood judgment again, let's build a tower high to the heavens and let's pitch it with something that will waterproof it. Let's build ourselves a vessel that will safeguard us from the judgment of God. And if that's the case, then the heart of this tower, the heart of this city is truly to disregard the word of God and to insulate themselves from his wrath. We'll live in open rebellion. There's nothing God can do to stop us, to thwart us. Look at verse four. Then they said, come, again, a conference among people without God. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So not only a tower, but also a city. The city is Babel, also known as Babylon. You can translate it one way. You can translate it as the gate of God, which is maybe what it originally was thought to be. And some have suggested their desire was for the tower's top to reach to the heavens. We know they missed the mark a bit. It was only about 200 feet tall at its zenith, so they didn't quite make it. We've got taller towers today. I was actually in the Burj Khalifa, the tallest uh, skyscraper in the world when I was in Dubai. And let me tell you, I hate heights. And so that was not a fun experience for me whatsoever. Uh, Is that the case? Were they just trying to reach the heavens? Well, as we look at Revelation 18, Babylon did succeed in getting something that reached heaven, but it wasn't their tower. Revelation 18 says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Here it is. For her sins have heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So the sin of Babylon reached heaven. So I don't believe that they were trying to actually reach the heavens. I think when it says uh, in verse 4 that they wanted the top of it to be in the heavens, there's another way of translating that, that they desired to look into the heavens, to study the heavens. And most occult and uh, astrological practices can be traced back to the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And this fascination with the heavens, with, you could say, with uh, just the, the astronomy or really astrology became idolatry. And the people began to worship the stars. They began to worship 
the false god Marduk. In Deuteronomy 17.3 and elsewhere, God forbids this. He forbids the worship of the sun, the moon, the stars. He forbids us from looking at the stars and trying to uh, take cues from Sagittarius. Okay, So it's important for us as Christians, we don't open uh, a horoscope and try to gain wisdom. Plus, they're super general anyway. Something wonderful is going to happen to you today. And so when you leave service, you're waiting for it. And then, of course, you go and have a donut, and something wonderful did happen to you, so astrology, you know, must be true. So the people of Israel were constantly tempted to go to the high places, which is almost synonymous with idol worship, to go up high and to study the heavens and practice fornication. And so, church, this city, this tower, is not just a fancy city with a beautiful view up on a high vista. This was the cosmopolitan center of idolatrous insurrection against God. So don't miss that. It's not that people are just trying to build a tower. What's the problem? No, they were defying God in their hubris and pride. Now, let's look at the second section. Because of that, we see God contemplating this. Verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. The tower. Now, if you're taking note, there's some fascinating study on what is the Tower of Babel. Uh, Most argue that it would have been a ziggurat, a stepped structure. Chris, I think we have a picture of that. Uh, A ziggurat is typically a place of worship. Um, They estimate that this particular tower would have needed 17 million individual bricks made and fired. Uh, Historians have suggested that the Babylonians would have etched the name of Marduk into each and every one of these bricks. And they also would argue at the very top of, this is a, low, a lower ziggurat, but the top would probably be seven or eight landings, and at the very top would be a temple to the false god. Now, what you see on the screen, leave it up there for a minute, uh, the Greek historian Herodotus recorded he had seen this location. There was a ziggurat with a tower built on top of it. However, what you see remaining here. Uh, was the aftermath of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great uh, came and decimated what was the tower there. And this is known as uh, Borsippa or Burz Nimrod. It's very interesting. The name of this is the Tower of Nimrod. I think that's very fascinating. It's located south of Babylon, currently in Iraq. But the sad thing is, this picture is all we have left because in 2016, ISIS forces destroyed the remains and so with with much of the other historical remains as well. Now, that could be the location for sure. If it wasn't here, there's a second possible location, a plausible historical site, and that's known as Etan Menaki. Uh, This is a massive step tower that did include a temple to Marduk on the top floor, and this is located almost in the center of Babylon. One archaeologist uh, generations ago found a tablet at the site. Now that site's not there anymore. There's actually a 300 square foot hole there. It's been used as a rock and brick quarry for generations. But there was an ancient tablet there that said the building of this illustrious tower offended the gods. In one night, they threw down what they had built. They scattered the people abroad and they made strange their speech. That's probably the Tower of Babel based on that. Now, I do think it's significant, if not humorous, 
that the people are saying, let's build for ourselves a tower that will reach to the heavens. And then it says that the Lord came down to see. The Lord had to come down. He had to descend down. What are they building down there? Let's go way down to their level and see what they're building. Uh, And so even in man's most vain attempts, we cannot ascend to heaven. We cannot compare with an infinite, all-powerful creator. All of our greatest attempts is like a flea trying to make some sort of noise. Now, look at verse six. It says, the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, I don't for a minute think that verse six means that they'll uh, attain some sort of deity. That's obviously ridiculous. But what I do think is he's saying nothing that they propose to do sinfully will now be, they're going to have full access to completely run the sin nature into a place that really it should never go. And so why is this such a problem? What's the deeper issue under the surface here? As we studied last week, Genesis chapter 10, the descendant of Ham named Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the face of God. If you weren't here last week, that does not mean that he was a skillful bowman or hunter of fish and fowl. It means he was a a hunter of men. And his name Nimrod implied an invitation. Come and rebel with me. Join my rebellion against God. And it's interesting that in Genesis 10.10, we see that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. And then he goes into Assyria and builds a lot of other cities. And this is, in verse 10, the first place the Bible uses the word kingdom. We looked last week at how all kingdoms are anti-kingdom, that there's only two. There's the kingdom of heaven, and there's the kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom of heaven. And so the city of Babylon is not just a wonderful city that man could make for himself. It was a city in opposition to God and his plan. So just for a minute, look at verse four. There's more to this. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. That's not just because they wanted to have notoriety. Remember, Moses wrote this, and the word for name here is the Hebrew word for name. Do you know what the Hebrew word for name or renown is? It's the name Shem. So what's they're, what they're saying is, does anyone recognize the word Shem? Does anyone re- That's a name, isn't it? See, the people of Nimrod's kingdom desire to make a Shem for themselves. We would like a Shem. And down in chapter 11, verse 10, after God's judgment, which we'll study next week, it says, these are the generations of Shem. And so it's almost as if man is seeking to make for himself our own Shem. Oh, Shem is going to be the one that is highly favored, the one that Messiah will come through. We'll make our own name. We'll make a Shem for ourselves. You see, what man proposes, God disposes. Chrysostom said, notice how the human race, instead of managing to keep its own, to its own boundaries, always longs for more and reaches out for greater things. This is what the human race has lost in particular, not being prepared to recognize the limitation of its own condition, but always lusting after more, entertaining ambitions beyond its capacity. You see, God comes down to see what this is ultimately about. 
And this is ultimately about idolatry. This is anti-kingdom. And so the Godhead has his own conference. The Godhead confers Father, Son, and Spirit. And the decision is to go down and confuse the language. So the word Babel actually sounds like the word for Babel that we use. Someone's babbling on. It means they're just droning on with nonsensical language. They're babbling or confusing speech. So the, the gate of God, the city of God, no, this is a place of confusion. So God's plan is to interrupt this idolatrous mission and divide their language by introducing confusing tongues so that they'll naturally segregate and separate and have the inability to continue this uh, defiance. So let's look at our third section, the confusion of language. It says in verse eight, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, confused, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God, uh, in his sovereign plan, was able to make the commission he had given to Adam and to Noah take place. He had to do it through this seeming judgment. Now, much can be accomplished when language is not a barrier. All the wives say amen to that, yeah. Much can be accomplished when there's not a barrier in language. Well, I think about the times I've been overseas and uh, been to Spanish-speaking countries like Honduras, Guatemala. I've been, like I just said, to the Middle East, and there's Arabic. I've been to Hungary, and it's very confusing uh, when you don't understand the language. I was in Hungary, and I think we have a picture of this subway. They said, yeah, just get on the subway. Do you have the, the list of names there, Chris? Yeah, maybe. They said, yeah, just, just uh, get off. And they said the name, and I, I just looked at that, and I said, I have no idea uh, what you're saying. It was very helpful for us to have a translator with us. The translator went with us. We knew where we were going, and I didn't have to say, whatever you just said, bless you. I don't know what that, what that is. But differing languages impedes communication. So we have to take the time to associate what we're saying with what the foreign speaker is saying. They're using language, what is that in our vernacular? And so learning language takes time, it takes effort, it takes precision. I was talking to Pastor Micah this week, and he told me when our missionaries go to reach people groups that speak Russian or Asian languages, it can take two to three years of language learning, constantly learning, just to get what's called capable high, which is the level that's appropriate enough for you to be able to really engage and talk about the deep things of the heart and the deep things of life, to function in social situations and understand the culture. It takes two to three years to learn the language. And uh, most of the missionaries that we see sent to unreached people groups first have to learn a language like Arabic or Russian or Mandarin and then learn a second or sometimes third language. So this takes time. We think about these rebels here and they're seeking to settle and not uh, spread out. They're seeking to build up, not build out. And yet God, in his judgment, separates their speech. So they're unable. They're one minute using one word that says brick, another word that says bitumen, and another that says build, another that says defy. Whatever they're saying, it now doesn't make any sense. And so they, you could just imagine immediately they're, they're trying to talk to one another. And well, now I can hear the same words being said with this lady over here, so let's talk. What's happening here? This is confusing. And you'd see the people starting to band together. Now, when you translate, 
the word confused in verses 7 and 9. And you take it from Hebrew into Greek, it's found in the New Testament in a very, very interesting passage. Acts chapter 2. Look on the screen and please jot these verses down. Very important verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is the church. Jesus has ascended. He said, I will send the promised Holy Spirit and not leave you as orphans. And so not many days from now, they'll be there. I'm not sure what's happening, but can you make it, when I say something powerful, just make it like boom. <laughs> Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice this, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, we got a solution for that? Yeah, that's fine. Does that work better? Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And it says they were bewildered. There's the word. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? If we had a map that highlighted the nations that are represented in Acts 2, it might look like this. From this one place, all of these nations, as the people are congregated together, they hear the wonders of God being declared in their own tongue. And so in many ways, what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was the reversal, or you could say the redemption, of the anarchy that ensued in Babel. There's a variety of tongues that's given in Genesis 11 as judgment, and in Acts chapter 2, they're given as a gift of God's grace. The nations are scattered at Babel through their rebellion, and through the proclamation of the gospel, those very nations are gathered back together into one new people. One person said it this way, Pentecost was to give them one language, one center, one object, one hope, one life. It was to gather them in such a way as that they never should be scattered or confounded again. To give them a name and a place which should endure forever to build for them a tower and a city which should not only have their top reaching to heaven, but their imperishable foundation laid in heaven by the omnipotent hand of God himself. It was to gather them around the glorious person of a risen and highly exalted Christ and unite them all in one grand design of magnifying and adoring him. You see, in the church, because of the Spirit's work, we now have one people, not a divided people, we have a united people. We have one message, we have one language, so to speak, though the gospel goes out into every language. And so what happened at Babel was in many ways reversed or redeemed through Pentecost. Instead of gathering together to make a name for ourselves, we are now gathered from every nation to make his name glorious. And so as we move from creation to the new creation, there's three important points that I want us to write down as we consider the first nine verses of chapter 11. The first point I want us to jot down is that, number one, the dogma of the anti-kingdom 
is contrary to the gospel. That's a pretty obvious statement. But just think about what the first Shinar Association had as its charter. The first annual Shinar Association. They said, we will defy God, we will deify self, we will dominate others. Has that changed? Has the gospel of the anti-kingdom changed? Defy God. In the 21st century, people began to, or the 20th century, people began to presume that God was dead. And the world today continues to suppress the truth of God to the extent that evil is good and what is good is condemned as evil. The world seems to see God as Marvel does. God is capricious. He's questionable. He should be answered Uh, answerable to humankind for his misdeeds, and he is worthy of death at our very hands. That's the world's view of God. God should answer to us, and we can put him to death. Defy God. Secondly, defy or deify self. Nimrod questions the word of God. He doubts the promise of God. He says, set ourselves up as the authority. Let's appropriate ourselves to the place of deity. Carl Truman said it, In the rise and triumph of the modern self, he said, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary prioritizes victimhood. It sees selfhood in psychological terms. It regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying. And here's the big one. It places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. Self is king. All these play into legitimizing and strengthening those groups that can define themselves in such terms. They capture, one might say, the spirit of the age. We deify self as we defy God. But thirdly, we dominate others. This isn't really an argument from the text, but uh, implicit in the text. But how do you think 17 million bricks that had the name Marduk etched into them, how do you think those bricks are laid? They were not laid by Nimrod. They were not laid by volunteers. They were most ostensibly laid by people who were captured or subdued. So I believe Nimrod's kingdom was built on violence, deception, and dominance. Has that changed? Is there a kingdom in history that has not been marked by dominance, by deception, by the seduction of power? Well, these are antithetical to the gospel. The gospel is the glory of God. It's the deity of Christ. And it's the death of self. And so the, the anti-kingdom is anti-gospel. And we just need to know that. But secondly, to encourage us today, it seems like, man, the world is just going to hell in a handbasket. But this is the encouraging point. And number two, that is that the nations will one day laud King Jesus. Uh, I want you to jot some verses down uh, and read them later. Psalm chapter 2 speaks of... Uh, The fact that the nations will come and they need to kiss the sun. They need to embrace the sun. Uh, Jot this down. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. This speaks about people taking counsel together, but it comes to nothing because God is with his people. Uh, If you look at Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, it speaks about the one who's like a son of man. He's the ancient of days. uh, And... He's been given a kingdom. And then if you look at Revelation chapter 11 in two places, jot these down. Revelation 11, 16 through 18, and then chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, we see 
that the kingdom, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of Christ. They will submit to him. And eventually Babylon in Revelation 18, uh, in the span of an hour, will be put to God's wrath. Nimrod's kingdom will come to an end, but Christ's kingdom is forever. We know this and we sing this or we talk about this at Christmas time. But in Isaiah, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That is not true of any Republican or of any Democrat. Of the increase of his kingdom and of his peace, there will be no end. That is Christ alone. And we look forward to that glorious kingdom as all nations will eventually bow the knee that Christ is king. And finally, for us as Christians, just one more note, that is that our, number three, our principal association is the local church. We talk about what organization are you a part of? What association do you find yourself identifying with? Revelation 7, 9 says there's a multitude of every nation, people, tribe, and language. And they stood before the throne and they worshiped the God alone who saves. Now you have a nationality to be sure, but that's not your exclusive primary identity. You may identify with a distinct people group, and that's good. But our primary association is that we are a part of the fellowship of the blood-bought. So our unity is not, well, sorry, I'm an Italian Christian. I'm an Italian first, then I'm a Christian. No, you're, you're a Christian. Our unity among our fellow church members uh, is because we've been blood-bought. One person said the Christians should only know one association, and that is the church of the living God, incorporated by the Holy Spirit, who came down from heaven as the witness of Christ's glorification to baptize believers into one body and to constitute them as God's dwelling place. Babylon is the very opposite of this in every particular. So as we close this morning, we fix our attention to someone else, someone else whose name means name renown. We've seen what happens when we make a name, a shem for ourselves. What about God's shem? As we'll see next week, from this mass of nations in chapter 10, God selects for himself a man to make a nation out of. That through this one man will be born the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the serpent-crushing Savior who will be a blessing to all nations. So as we close this morning, the, the sermon, let me bring this home to each one of us. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. I know in my own life there was a, a moment where I was seeking to make a name for Pilgrim, seeking to make a name for myself. I was running headlong against Christ. I wasn't a prodigal or a seeker seeking out, looking for God, um, you know, just trying to, trying to find God. And let me, let me look here and look there. No, I was, I was someone who was dead, who was completely running headlong against God. And God, in his mercy and his grace, he reached down and he plucked me like a brand out of the fire, reserved for condemnation. He pulled me out and he adopted me into his family. And he's done the same for those of us who have confessed Christ. So this morning, if you're someone who has, is trying to, with your own wisdom, with your own understanding, with your own counsel, fight against God, I just want to let you know one day your efforts will result in frustration and fury. This morning, submit your allegiance to King Jesus. Turn your heart and your rebellion into words of surrender. 
Bow your heart, bow your knee this morning. This morning, one of two poems represents each one of us. I've shared this before, but there's two poems that either represent uh, one or the other. Uh, There's a poem called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. And this is a favorite of most atheists. It was the poem that the condemned terrorist Timothy McVeigh quoted right before he was put to death by lethal injection. And here's the poem. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I've not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the, but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Christians should never quote this song, quote this song or this poem uh, in the affirmative. See, there's a woman named Dorothy Day who took this poem, Invictus, and she changed it and wrote the poem Conquered. And this is the poem that we would affirm as Christians. She says, out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Amen. This morning, you and I either stand on the merits of our own achievements, our own grandiose works, as we pridefully defy the God who calls us to repent and believe, or we stand defeated. We wave the white flag of spiritual surrender and we declare with the saints, the war is over. I've seen the triumph of the crucified and I bow in submission to the lordship of Christ. Who are you this morning? Are you a part of the rebellion of Nimrod's empire or are you a citizen of heaven? Don't let another hour or minute go by in your rebellion. Today, repent and receive Christ as Lord. For those of us who are in the church, we have such a glorious uh, ambassadorship. We're citizens of heaven and we have the privilege of declaring the good news, the good works of Christ in every tongue. And so may we continue to do that until Christ is uh, with us and we are with the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Our only King Jesus, your rule and reign and righteousness will never end. We read these words at Christmas, but they're biblical words. Unto us a son, a child has been born, a son has been given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Lord, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and this morning we pledge our allegiance to you, and we ask that you would empower us to be a witness of your sufferings and your glory to all nations. The nations rage in their rebellion, 
And, and yet, Lord, you have called us to kiss the Son, to receive the Son of God. So, Lord, give us boldness. Give us words. Allow us, Lord, by faith and urgency to be the church that joins you in seeing the gospel declared among the most unreached. Lord, one day we will see a gathering together in glory, a song of your salvation. And Lord, until that day, we pray that you would tear down every evil kingdom. Lord, that you would allow your church to rise up to this occasion, the occasion of this generation, that we wouldn't shrink back in fear, but we'd stand firm in truth. Lord, may we not seek a love of power, but may we embody the power of love, your agape love, your unending, unfailing, everlasting kindness to those who would believe. We trust your spirit to work that which is pleasing in your sight for Christ's sake, for the sake of your name and your kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's glorious and matchless name together. And all who agree said, amen, amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.